Coming up on this episode of the Empowerment Perspective Podcast. Um, Very often in education, the idea is held that kids do well if they want to. And if you look at behavior as always being volitional and always being a choice, you know, you, you look at it as the kid is making these choices, your approaches to behavior are typically focused on reward and consequence. So you think it's you think it's a matter of the kid making a bad choice, uh, when in fact, there are other reasons that kids often have a difficult time. Um, what I would say is that kids often have a difficult time when they have a lagging skill, when they have an unsolved problem. If you look at who's affected by things like restraint seclusion, uh, or a lot of the punitive approaches that we talked about, it's, again, kids with disabilities, black and brown kids, kids with a trauma history. episode is brought to you by SNA Audio and Video. With over five years' experience in the audiovisual industry, SNA Audio and Video is your industry expert in Paulsboro. We pride ourselves on our extreme professionalism and attention to detail. Our customer service guarantee will assure you we will not leave your property until you are completely satisfied with our work. As a family-owned and operated business, you can trust that we will treat your home as we would treat our own. Give us a call today and we look forward to working with you. We offer TV mounting, surround sound systems, smart home product instructions, security camera systems and installation, ceiling fan installations, and more. Servicing areas in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware. To SNA Audio and Video, call us at 856-319-6658 or 856-542-8358. This is the Empowerment Perspective Podcast, hosted by Dr. Demiso A. Josie. All right, welcome to yet another episode of the Empowerment Perspective Podcast. I go by the name of Dr. Demiso A. Josie. And as usual, we are always about bringing impactful guests onto this show, people that have useful information. Um, I met this uh, gentleman that I'm going to introduce in a second. We were at a, a training in New Jersey. Uh, we were told we were at this particular training was about dealing with uh, behavior students that went through trauma and certain those, those certain things. And we were talking about how to deal with those things. And um, and he was sitting there and he was talking and, and he was telling me about his story. And I kind of was like, you know what? You should be on the podcast. And because I think you have some great information. You have a very unique perspective. Um, so uh, Guy, welcome to the show. I appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Happy to join you. And, uh, you know, I, f- I feel uh, fortunate that we were able to uh, meet and uh, sit at the table, few, same table there for a few days. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always a, a pleasure to learn from other people and hear their stories and, and get to share our own. Right, right, right. So uh, let's just start from how did you end up at this particular conference? Um, and then we'll get into exactly what you're, you're, you know, you're doing. Uh, sure. So um, I have a, a pretty um, intense interest in how to better support uh, kids, teachers, and staff. Uh, and of course, I'll tell you later about kind of the organization that I'm behind. But uh, in, in having that interest, I'm always looking for opportunities uh, to learn more and learn about new approaches. And of course, uh, I was able to join you at a, a training uh, for LSCI, which is what Life Spaces Crisis Intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I first heard about LSCI, I thought, okay, it's another crisis um, intervention program. Uh, they're probably going to talk about restraining kids and uh, then I dug into it, and when I realized that uh, uh, the gentleman that I know, Michael McKnight, was teaching the course, 
Uh, I know that Michael's very aligned with a lot of the beliefs that I have. And I thought, well, gee, I need to learn more about this. Uh, so I reached out to Michael and said, you know, tell me about this LSCI. And uh, he told me a little bit about it. And I thought, well, gee, you know, would it be okay if I came and, and join you for that training? Uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, we don't, we don't just recommend things. You know, if we're going to recommend something, we want to go through and do it and understand it. Uh, so I spent four days up there in New Jersey. Uh, because I wanted to learn about what the approach was, um, because I read the the introduction on the website and it talked about being trauma-informed and brain-aligned. I'm like, ah, well, those are good things. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I came to be there, um, you know, I guess in the quest for knowledge, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of how I ended up there myself, um, and then realized, I was like, I've been to part of this training already, and then it, it kind of opened up a bigger uh, picture for me. Um, so those of you in, in education or any space, I encourage you to continue to learn because there's all there's a plethora of information out there that you don't know, and it's only going to make you better at your craft. Let's get into the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Um, let's talk about um, let's talk about your story. I want to dig into your sure, story sure. and how you even got to this particular point. So, um, but before we do that, explain what is seclusion and restraint, and then how you kind of got into this space. Oh, great, great. And that's a great way to start it because it's easy for me to start with my story and uh, realize that not everybody knows what restraint and seclusion are, especially in the context of a school, which is what I'm going to be talking about. Um, to be completely honest with you, the first time I heard the words restraint seclusion in the context of a school, I was actually kind of surprised. I would not have imagined these were things that might have been done in a school. So let me tell you what they are. Um, restraint is exactly what you probably think it is. It's some way of holding an individual, uh, which limits their ability to move freely. Uh, and, you know, restraints can be done in lots of different settings. Uh, you might think about initially restraint being done in a law enforcement setting. So somebody is getting arrested and they're resisting and they might be physically restrained. And of course, you know, you no doubt are familiar with the, the stories of individuals that have been, have have died or be, been killed, you know, really in, in uh, the, um, you know, the pursuit of a physical restraint. Uh, so restraint is just really a way to, to hold somebody. Uh, I'll tell you the idea behind why it happens in a moment, but uh, believe it or not, it is something that happens in school, uh, including things like prone restraint. And prone restraint is a face-down restraint. Uh, it's the one that's often associated with things like, I can't breathe, because when you're holding somebody face down, uh, it can limit their ability to breathe. And what may be surprising to a lot of people is that these things can happen to uh, kids as young as five years old that are put into physical restraints. So restraint is some kind of hold. And, and the, the concept behind a restraint is that it's a crisis intervention. So if there were a crisis and a child's um, you know, behavior escalated to the point where it could result in um, serious injury, uh, the idea is that restraint is a method that would be used to prevent harm. Uh, one of the issues, of course, is that um, often restraint Restraint is not used just for these kind of really dangerous crisis situations, uh, but sometimes for very mild things that escalate. So a kid refuses to do a worksheet, it escalates, eventually the kid gets physically restrained. Uh, and seclusion is taking an individual, uh, in this case a kid, and putting them into a room or area uh, against their will and not letting them out. So the scenario is this, a kid has become... Um, you know, disruptive is having, again, potentially dangerous behaviors. And that child might forcibly be put into a room, which could be a closet. It could be a padded room. It could be a plywood room. They're usually fairly small. There's usually nothing in the room other than a window that looks out. And a child might be put into one of those rooms kind of under the, the um, 
thought that, well, that child needs a, a calming area. They need to go and calm down. And, and the truth is, there's really nothing at all calming about being forced into a room or area and having somebody hold the door shut. If a kid goes in there, they might bang and scream and scratch, bang their head. Um, that might carry on for 10, 15 minutes. And, you know, perhaps in 20 minutes, you know, perhaps in 15 minutes, they've kind of gone to the back of the room, they've slouched down, they've kind of hang their head down low. Uh, people might look on and say, oh, well, they've calmed down. Uh, I can assure you that's not calm. Uh, that's the kid really entering a survival brain state. You know, when we feel so hopeless and helpless, our brain will begin to kind of shut down. And some kids even go into um, uh, disassociative states. Um, so, you know, I, you know, and, and I'll, I'll kind of lean my, my uh, hand here in terms of restraint seclusion. Uh, I don't believe that seclusion, in my opinion, is ever an appropriate intervention. Uh, putting a young child in a room area and not letting them leave, it's, it's extremely traumatic. And unfortunately, that trauma, trauma can really increase the likelihood of, of behavior in the future. Uh, when it comes to restraint, I would say it should be exceedingly rare. Uh, one of the issues with restraint and seclusion is that there's no federal law that provides oversight around the use of restraint and seclusion in schools. So there are federal laws in law enforcement, there are federal laws in, in medical settings, but in schools, there's no federal law. And what that means is that every state is up to their own in terms of having laws and policies that around this. And some states have pretty good policies and laws and some states don't have such good policies and laws. But what I found is despite how strong the laws are, these interventions are very often used inappropriately. So um, what the federal government says about restraint seclusion, again, no law, but their guidance says, these are crisis interventions. You should only use these if you've tried all other things you can try, and it's necessary to prevent imminent serious physical harm. And that definition of imminent serious physical harm is important. Uh, that essentially means a life or death situation. It means life or death. It means serious bodily disfigurement, loss or impairment of a bodily function or organ. So according to federal guidance, you should not use these things unless there's potentially a chance that somebody could die or be injured to that kind of degree. And if you think about that, and we know hundreds and hundreds of kids have died being restrained in schools. Uh, you know, some of these have hit the news. Um, you know, about two years ago, a young man named Cornelius Frederick, uh, he was in a school outside of Michigan. Uh, he was, uh, I want to say about uh, 13 or 14, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but I, I may be wrong on that. He was in a cafeteria and he threw a sandwich and he eventually was prone, put in a prone restraint and it killed him. Um, the same year that I got involved in this with my son um, back in 2018, my son at the time um, was 13 years old, young man in California named Max Benson autistic, uh, was having a, a meltdown, was put into a prone restraint and, and died. So, you know, if we know kids die uh, or can die being restrained, we know that restraint is potentially deadly force. And if we look at the data, what you find is that the kids that are most often restrained and secluded are children with disabilities, black and brown children, children with a trauma history, and very young kids. So contrary to what people often think when they hear this, it's not usually a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old. It's usually a five, six, or seven-year-old. And, and the question then is, you know, when do you ever use potentially deadly force on a five-year-old? Mm. Um, you know, I, again, I would say to you that the use of restraint should be exceedingly rare um, because it does provide risk to children. But one of the greatest risks is the trauma. 
And, you know, a lot of these kids and, and you know, we spent a, a few days together really focused on trauma. A lot of these kids have had nothing but trauma, nothing but consequences. And, you know, the more these things happen, the more their behaviors are likely to increase, uh, not decrease. So, you know, at the, the very simple uh, question you asked, like, what are these things? And, and really they're intended as crisis management. Um, they are potentially harmful. Um, and, uh, you know, there's better things we can and should be doing in, in most cases. And again, um, seclusion, I don't think should ever happen, but restraint really should be rare. And unfortunately, it's not. Sure, sure, sure. We're going to get to your story, but I think you hit on some some good points, sure. some points that we talked about um, at the training, actually. Um, I, when you kept talking, you were talking and you were describing these things, I kept thinking like, there's so many things that happened before this. Right. right. Like before that, and the, the incidents taking place, something caused this triggered happen, you know, this event and this intervention to be triggered in the first right. place. So part of our training we went to, we, to, we we're talking about some of those things. So let's just dive into, um, you know, some of the things that we talked about. And, and right. we'll use a trauma um, sensitive student as an example, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, we have an episode. Like, what are some interventions and strategies that we talked about in this particular training that? would hopefully prevent us from having to use interventions such as restraint and seclusion. Uh, sure. So, you know, I think um, and I'm going to answer that more broadly, um, you know, in terms of what are the things we do to prevent the use of restraint and seclusion? The, the first thing is we go upstream, right? Um, so rather than focusing on crisis management, how do we get in the area where we can focus on crisis prevention? How do we understand, um, you know, where or why a child is having a difficult time. Um, you know, in addition to the training that, that we've did, you know, I've done a lot of different training. I'm sure that you have done a tremendous amount of training in your role as well. Uh, one of the, the trainings that's always stuck with me a lot is the work of Dr. Ross Green. Uh, Dr. Green has an approach called collaborative and proactive solutions. And the, the premise behind the collaborative proactive solutions approach is this idea that kids do well if they can. And that sounds like a really simple thing to say, right? But very often in, in education, I think, you know, again, uh, I'm talking to somebody with far more background experience than I have, but I, I, I think you'll, you'll probably agree with what I'm saying here. Um, very often in education, the idea is held that kids do well if they want to. And if you look at behavior as always being volitional and always being a choice, you know, you, you look at it as the kid is making these choices, your approaches to behavior are typically focused on reward and consequence. Mm -hmm. So you think, it's, you think it's a matter of the kid making a bad choice, uh, when in fact, there are other reasons that kids often have a difficult time. Um, what I would say is that kids often have a difficult time when they have a lagging skill when they have an unsolved problem. If you look at who's affected by things like restraint and seclusion, uh, or a lot of the punitive approaches that we talked about, it's, again, kids with disabilities, black and brown kids, kids with a trauma history. Um, so what do we know about those kids? Well, we know the kids that have a trauma history are kids that are more likely to be hypervigilant. A hypervigilant kid is kind of not feeling safe, always looking for the environment to be unsafe, might be more apt to have stress-related behaviors. And very often those stress-related behaviors are met with, demands for compliance. So kids have a hard time. What's the, the initial approach? It's, well, you need to do this. You need to do that. Um, what happens? It escalates, right? It escalates to the point of uh, potentially using things like restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion. And I remember talking to you uh, while we were there, and yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact story, but you know, you kind of shared a story. And sometimes it's just like kind of getting down on the level with the kid and talking to them and you know, understanding what's going on. Um, but you know, if you think about behavior, 
the approach is often far different than we approach other problems. So if a kid has a difficult time reading, what do we do? Well, we identify that they have a difficult time reading and we offer some kind of intervention because we know it's a skill. They have a skill deficit. How do we offer an intervention to help them read? Now, if, if you had a hard time reading, um, I wouldn't just hold up a cookie and say, well, if you read this, you're gonna get a cookie, right? But if you think about our approach with behavior, it's often very reward driven. You know, we don't look at the fact that the kid might have a lagging skill or some unsolved problem. We look at it from a motivational standpoint. Mm -hmm. And very often, especially when we're talking about young children with disabilities, we're talking about uh, kids, again, that don't have uh, an issue with motivation. They have a, an issue with skills. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one approach is, you know, one, uh, I'm a huge believer in relationships. And, uh, you know, I know from, from talking to you uh, that that was something that you, you value as well. Uh, relationships mean all the difference in the world between a kid that feels, you know, seen and heard and like you actually, you, know, you give a damn about them. You, you want them to do well. And, you know, a, a kid that might not succeed. I mean, you, we often hear, you know, that one, that one adult relationship. And, and in your role, I'm sure that you have been that one adult for some kids that you can think of right now. Um, but that that makes a huge difference as well. Uh, you know, I think what we brought from that training is, is some of these principles and some of these ideas, but also how you approach that, that situation when the child is having a difficult time. You know, in LSCI, of course, they have this interview process, and, and it's really trying to get at the root of the problem. In my opinion and experience, and again, you know, I'm, I'm talking to somebody with, with a lot of experience, um, I believe that part of the issue lies in kind of our standard approach to behavior in a lot of a lot of places across the, the the nation in terms of schools in that a lot of the approaches are heavily influenced by behaviorism mm -hmm. so if we go back to behaviorism we're talking about 1930s and 1950s science of you know going back to uh, bf skinner and operant conditioning it's about reward it's about consequences about motivating behavior and a lot of the approaches taken in school, even some that sound like really positive things, are very often entrenched in this idea that it's about behavior. And when you get into some of those processes, they they look at behavior in a very limited way. Uh, they might look at behavior as kind of the, you know, the ABCs, the antecedent, the uh, behavior, and the consequence. And very often, the look at the antecedent is very shallow. It's not mm -hmm. digging deep. It's not digging to, you know, it might be the thing that happened right before the kid expressed this behavior but that's not really the cause. Mm -hmm. It might be what happened on the bus, what happened the day before, what happened in another setting or a previous experience. Trauma comes back as a reaction, right? Yeah. It's not a thought, it's a reaction. So, you know, I would say that a lot of those classical be, uh, behaviorist approaches are not digging deep enough. They're often, you know, kind of, okay, well, you know, as the adult, what's the solution here? Okay, here's what we're gonna do. Here's, here's the idea. Here's what you're gonna do and here's what you're gonna get. Mm -hmm. It's not working. And getting back to Dr. Green's work, uh, you know, he talks about kind of this collaborative problem solving, where you actually work with the child to understand what's getting in their way. And, and from there, you, you kind of share, you know, you let the child share their concern, why this has been difficult for them. You share the adult concern. Why is this important? And, and tip here, sometimes the things we care about aren't really that important. Sometimes we're just in a power struggle. But, you know, from there, you collaborate with the child on a solution. And if you can get the child involved in problem solving, you can come up with much more durable solutions. I mean, uh, you know, we, we probably both learned that as, as parents as well. Um, sometimes it feels good to be, you know, the king and demand what's going to happen. But when we can work with kids, we can make a much bigger difference, especially 
the children that we're talking about here in terms of kids that have a trauma history and you know kids with a disability i think um and i always say this um education to me begins and ends with relationship building that's the number one thing right there but i also uh, tell educators all the time that behavior is a symptom yep. it's not the cause right so it's it's like having a common cold and we kind of approach it the same way right we, we treat the symptoms right but it's not curing the the cold it's going to come back again if you don't cure what actually is causing it so when the kid is acting out we get so caught up in the actual behavior not realizing that there it stemmed from something else and until we are able to address that and and fix that these behaviors are going to keep repeating itself and repeating itself, um, which is which is in, it, it's important for us again to echo what I right. just said to have these relationships, right? Oh, we, absolutely, I, I couldn't agree with you more on relationships. And you know, sometimes, and, and you probably heard it as well. You know, well, I don't have time. I don't have time for you know. I would say the opposite is true. You don't have time not to. Um, I'm gonna tell you how why how you know it's important. If I ask you who is your favorite teacher of all time, you you have a teacher in your head. Yep. Yep. What made that teacher your favorite teacher? Uh, it was a relationship. It was somebody that 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 cared about who I was as a person. Uh, you know that that did things to to show that. And and uh, you know I, I had no problem at all. Uh, it, it was going back to the second grade, uh, Mr. Miller, and I have no idea where Mr. Miller might be this these days. But it was a stark contrast to my third grade or my second grade, excuse me, first grade teacher. Um, first grade was a tough year and it's a tough year for a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. uh, her name was Miss Green and I hope she's not watching because I thought of her as Miss Mean. Uh, <laughs> and, and Mr. Miller was kind. Uh, you know, I remember, uh, you know, uh, little things like, uh, you know, remember the uh, the little scholastic things where you could order a poster or something, you know, um, you know, my parents would always send me with money to buy something and, you know, Mr. Miller would buy me a poster or do something nice. It was, it was a relationship. It's knowing that people value who you are and couldn't agree more. So when I ask these people, thousands of educators, right. they all say the exact same thing. Nobody says, well, that, I remember that my second grade teacher really taught me math or my right. third grade teacher really kept me aligned. It was always about how they made you feel and you made it made you feel accepted, wanted and all those things. So relationship Absolutely. building is the key to all of this stuff. Um, and then understanding that the behavior that you're seeing is not the end of, you know, the start of it all. It's just letting you know that there is an issue. It's kind of like the fire alarm going off in your house. And it's not going to tell you what type of fire it is. Right. It's going to say, hey, something's wrong. Right. You don't know if it's electrical, gas, whatever the case may be. Now you have to do an investigation, find out what the issue is. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I think about our, our, our kids that, you know, uh, a lot of our kids that, you know, are are probably most vulnerable to, you know, having these behaviors. These are kids that have kind of a um, oversensitive alarm system themselves. These are kids that, you know, have often had, you know, trauma and uh, a, a lot of difficulty and, and they're you know, they're, they're not ready for you to build a relationship. Um, it's not always going to be easy, but the difference it can make is, is phenomenal. I mean, again, one adult, one adult relationship can, can really change the direction of a kid's life. Let's talk about the Alliance Against Seclusion sure. and Restraint, exactly what your mission is and, and, and tying your story on how you even got into this point. Sure. Um, and, and the story, you know, I, I won't go all the way into all the details, but, um, you know, I got into this because of personal experience. Uh, I have a neurodivergent son who was being inappropriately restrained and secluded at school. Uh, happened to him the very first time when he was just six years old in the first grade. Uh, he was on the playground. He didn't want to come in. Eventually things escalated. Eventually he was physically restrained, uh, brought in and put into an empty office. 
Um, they never said he was restrained or secluded, but it's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, we had it happen again in the fifth grade. We had a number of great years where people, uh, he had some great staff that really had relationships with him and really supported him. But in the fifth grade, uh, it happened again at the end of the year, uh, kind of following an unexpected tragedy. Uh, my son had a teacher he'd been working with for a couple of years that he had a really good relationship with. Uh, she was his person. If he was having a hard day, he might just go sit and talk with her. They might go for a walk behind the school. Um, she got in an unexpected car accident and wasn't able to come back to school. And when that happened, uh, the school initially wasn't telling people what had happened. My son was growing increasingly anxious about, you know, what was going on with, with Mrs. Peterson. And uh, eventually he found out and he began to have a hard time. He began to get dysregulated and other people were not working with him in the same way. They were putting demands on him and he was clearly overwhelmed. And we saw behavior uh, that we hadn't seen for five years come back. He was in a loper when he was very young. If he got overwhelmed, he might elope and, and run down a hallway and hide. Well, at the end of fifth grade, on two occasions, he, he eloped, he hid in a bathroom, only to eventually come out and be physically restrained, drugged down a hallway and thrown into an empty classroom. Um, this had a tremendous impact on him. He didn't feel safe going back to school. Uh, we ultimately decided to homeschool him for the next two years, not because we were excited about being homeschooling parents. That was never on our agenda, um, but he did not feel safe going back. And he went back uh, in 2018 when he was in the eighth grade uh, at his own decision. He decided he wanted to go back. He wanted to be with his friends. Uh, he had been seeing some of his friends more. We worked hard to get him back into school, had to requalify him for services, talked about what had happened to him before, talked about the importance of, of not putting hands on him. He should never have been uh, restrained or secluded. Uh, if you look at what happened to him, it wouldn't have been consistent with what our state law said. Um, unfortunately, um, with all the, the hard work that we put into getting him back, we got him back into school. He was there for about 15 days and over 15 days was restrained or secluded at least four times. We think it might've been seven or eight times. The school only officially reported two of the instances. And again, after 15 days, there was a, a traumatic event and he was afraid to go back. He had been traumatized at school and he was not gonna go back. Uh, we advocated for home and hospital at that point. Uh, he had a great home and hospital teacher that um, built a relationship with him before doing anything else, never restrained or secluded him or put hands on him. Uh, and, and actually uh, now four years later is still a family friend. Uh, my son goes over to his house on the weekends and mows his lawn. But, you know, this person was that kind of relationship, right? Steve will be in our lives probably forever. Uh, by the way, Steve is uh, in his 70s, had been teaching for 50 years, um, mm -hmm. you know. So after this happened to my son, I, I made a promise to him. And this is kind of the origin of the alliance. And my promise was pretty simple. I said, you know, Cooper, what happened to you shouldn't have happened. Um, this is not an okay way to work with people. If you look at why he was restrained and secluded, it wouldn't have met the state criteria. Our, our state says imminent serious physical harm, life or death. He once was restrained and secluded for splashing water, once for throwing a book, not at anybody, just throwing a book. Um, and, you know, I made a promise that I would do anything in my power to make sure it didn't happen to him again. Would have had no guess that, you know, almost four years later, I'd be having a conversation with you about this. Uh, at the time, I had been working for a university for over 10 years. I was in a job working uh, in the same job, actually, for almost 20 years, had no intent of, of changing my career or vacation or any of that. Um, but the last, you know, three and a half years has, has been, um, you know, quite, 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 <laughs> quite an adventure. Um, I began initially trying to understand why it happened, who it was happening to, what the impact was. Turns out that our school district, we have about 16, uh, excuse me, 23 school districts in the state. 
Uh, ours was 16th in terms of size. They were number one in the use of seclusion, number two in the use of restraint when you looked at it against enrollment. So why was our district using these things so much more than other districts? You know, I come to find it's really about culture and training. Uh, the culture was one that, you know, this is what was done to these children when they were having a difficult time. Uh, I worked with our school district and, you know, I'm going to go over this in a sentence or so, and it sounds easy. It wasn't, but we eventually changed the policy. We brought in new training. Uh, the year this happened to my son, there were about 750 restraints, uh, about 500 and some seclusions in a district of about uh, 14, 14,000 kids. Uh, this past year, you know, three plus years later, uh, at the midway point, we had, I think, 10 restraints and one seclusion. So, you know, made a significant difference by bringing in new training, but really changing mindset. Um, but the, the alliance formed initially about three and a half years ago. The idea behind it was I was doing all this research. I wanted to understand who was impacted, what was the impact, what could we do differently? And of course, the who is kids with disabilities, black and brown children, children with a trauma history, very young kids. The, the what is significant trauma, injury, and even death. And then the, what else can we do? Well, I didn't know the answer to that initially, but you know, after spending three and a half years of, of research, uh, there are a lot of things we can do better. And, and you, from your experience and your, your you know, I think your um, you know, uh, instincts about this, right? Uh, you know, I think that uh, sometimes people lose touch of their instincts and, mm -hmm. and sometimes the instincts are better than uh, the education we get. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I found a lot of different solutions to what are better things that we can and should do. And I can tell you that they work. So today, what the Alliance does is, you know, our little group grew from, you know, me and a couple of, of parents to we have over 20,000 people now following us on social media. And that means we've got parents of kids that have been restrained and secluded. We have a lot of self-advocates, a lot of autistic self-advocates whose voice is, is incredibly important to this conversation. Uh, we have a lot of teachers, a lot of administrators, you know, um, occupational therapists, speech pathologists, you know, attorneys, a lot of people who are kind of united by this idea like, hey, we can do something better. Restraint seclusion, there's got to be a better way. And we do a lot of work around education. So what are better ways? We do, like, like this, we do live events every, couple, every two weeks. Uh, we talk to experts, we talk to educators, we talk to families and try to get out there. Here are the better things we can and should be doing. Uh, we also work on legislation. Uh, I provided testimony uh, in Illinois about two years ago around their legislation, have offered some input in Maine to their legislation, uh, meeting with a senator in uh, Oregon uh, soon for discussions about legislation. Last year in Maryland, we had, uh, we had some really positive movement. We passed the bill in Maryland to uh, eliminate the use of seclusion in all public schools. And, uh, you know, that's going to make a difference for kids. Uh, you don't always accomplish this all at once. But, you know, I, I started this because of what happened to my son. I keep doing it um, because there's a lot of kids out there that don't have anybody in their corner. And I'll never forget, you know, about nine months after we were doing, started doing this, um, we got that new policy passed. And my son looks at me and goes, so are you done with all this restraint and seclusion stuff? I said, well, no, because if we were to move tomorrow, the same thing could happen again. But even more so, it's all these kids that it's happening to. And the outcome, I mean, you know this, you know the outcome. What's the outcome of restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment? It's kids becoming disinterested in school, disengaged in school, ending up in the, the juvenile justice system, ending up in the criminal justice system. And that's avoidable. And there are lives out there that are not, uh, you know, the, 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 the outcomes are not good. 
And I feel an obligation to to continue this. You know, it's interesting because, like I said, I wasn't looking to change careers or any of that. Uh, I actually left my job uh, earlier this year to focus on this full time. Haven't figured out how I'm going to, you know, pay my mortgage yet, but I'm working on that. Um, but, you know, it's really important work. So that's kind of how we got started. You know, it was a personal experience that led me to, hey, you know, this isn't OK. We can do better. We're running out of time here, but I do want um, you to give your information out to people. How can they get involved? How can they find more information about what you're doing? Sure. So we have a, a website, which is endendseclusion.org, and that's a great place to go. Uh, of course, we're on uh, Facebook. We're on Twitter, usually at endseclusion. Uh, we're also on Instagram, uh, YouTube. We've got a fantastic uh, YouTube channel. Um, you know, we've been doing live, you know, like you, we've been doing, you know, live interviews and events for uh, you know, about three years now. And there's a lot of really valuable information there as well. Of course, uh, I always encourage people to reach out to me directly. Um, you know, I have a lot of conversations with with parents and families, have a lot of conversations with educators, uh, often that are trying to influence change. Uh, so people are welcome to even email me directly. And it's Guy, G-U-I, Stevens, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S, at nseclusion.org. Always happy to talk to anybody that's that's looking to do something to bring about change. Awesome. Well, Guy, I definitely appreciate you having having you on the show today. Um, I definitely want to have you back because I definitely want to do the teacher's lounge at some point, but I feel like we need to further have the discussion. But I promised my audience that we would keep it down to the half hour show that I promised everybody. Um, but before you invited somebody that talks way too much, no, and, and I apologize. Listen, I said it's, it's your show. You know, I'm just hosting and giving people great information. Um, you know, I'm always looking for uh, people that have a, a story to tell and also looking for um, people that are real and um, will give us some good information. And you definitely give us stuff to talk, uh, to think about, um, not even from an education standpoint, even from a parental standpoint. Um, if you, get anything out of this i would want you to understand that you know restraint and seclusion should be the absolute positively last resort um and when it's <laughs> and only if it's necessary um but there's a slew of things that happened before there that we need to dig into stop just worrying about changing the behavior changing the behavior because you're not going to change it by disciplining them straight Amen. off punitive uh, measures you have to go deeper than that and you have to Absolutely. find out what makes these people tick so uh, make sure you do that God, i'm gonna give you the last word before i do some housekeeping things um any words of wisdom for our educators out there this school year? Uh, you know, it, it's going to be a hard year, right? We, we, we know it's going to be a hard year. Last year was a hard year. This year is going to be a difficult year. Um, you know, that's something we're really focused on here. In fact, we've got an event in October um, that's really kind of moving in this direction, knowing that these things are going to be tough. Uh, we got a great event, uh, October 14th, I think it is. It's called From uh, Compliance to Compassion. And it's really focused on like, how do we make the shift in these difficult times to support kids that are going through a lot? So, you know, certainly have that but the other thing I would say is that, uh, you know, I look forward to having you on on our show as well. Uh, you know, I think anything we can do to share good ideas and, you know, you're you're so on in terms of behavior. It's not about the behavior that's in front of you. It's about digging deeper and figuring out ways to make differences in, in the lives of the kids that, you know, we're, we're trying to help. Awesome. Again, I definitely thank you for our audience out there. A couple of reminders before we go. November 5th, um, if you've been following us, you know that we're big on cancer research and trying to find a cure to cancer and helping those families um, that, that are out there in need. So on November 5th, we are partying with a purpose down in Atlantic City. And we're doing a 90s throwback 
in 2000's throwback hip hop and R&B party um, at Little Water Distillery. 100% um, of the proceeds is going to cancer research. You also have an opportunity to sign up for our bikeathon for the American Cancer uh, Bike Ride from Philadelphia to Atlantic City. So you can ride with us um, um, for a good cause as well. So uh, make sure you check that out. Um, also in, in November, we do our turkey drives for the needy families in the, in the South Jersey area. Um, we also do our toy drive for CHOP coming up in December. So there's some things that are, you know, we're getting ramped up for um, coming soon. So November 5th, make sure you buy your tickets early because we're, we're selling out fast. Um, make sure you get that. Um, the pre-sale is going on right now. When this podcast comes out, you should be able to get it. Uh, $15 in, in advance, 20 at the door. So um, as always, everyone, stay empowered.